Well, good morning. Well, I'm Logan Greathouse. It's a pleasure to be in front of you and giving the word this morning. Um, you might, uh, in case we, you're new here or if we not, don't know each other very well, you, I'm usually with a guitar up here or in row two right over here. You might recognize me from those places. Um, firstly, I want to start by saying thank you to Matt. Um, for asking me, for, for trusting me with this opportunity this morning. Um, it really is an honor to bring the word, bring the message. Uh, and it's, it's, it's pretty exciting for me. When he asked me, I, I was pretty excited because I love the Advent season. I love Christmas so much. Uh, the t- this time of year, I typically uh, become introspective and I get emotional. I'll hear stuff like, Hark the Herald and tears come to my eyes. Just because, I, I, maybe, that's, maybe it's just because I'm a crybaby, and you can verify that with my wife, she knows. Um, but I get emotional when I think about the story of Christ and the way that he was given to us. Um, there's so much rich and beautiful language in the Gospels concerning the nativity. But this morning, I'm not going to talk about the nativity, at least not, not right away. I'm going to take a little different approach. And we're going to walk back a little bit further in time before the nativity. Um, we're going to talk about recognizing Jesus in the law. And Matt started the series last week as he talked about recognizing Jesus as supreme. Uh, and you might remember the pizza. Uh, this morning, we're going, to, we're going to be recognizing Jesus in the law. And the law that I'm talking about this morning is the law of Moses, recorded in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also called the Mosaic Law, or the Torah. Um, The Torah, which we believe to be written by Moses, uh, begins with the creation story in Genesis, and it it, it uh, records God's first interactions with man. And then in Exodus, we see God actually calling out a people, not just individuals. We see him calling out a people for the first time and claiming them as his own. Um, And then the remaining three books of the Torah, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, contain what's called the Law of Moses. So maybe you're wondering this morning why we're talking about Exodus and the Mosaic Law on an Advent Sunday. Well, I know that Exodus might not be where most Christmas messages typically go, but I believe it really should. Because it's a story that God would echo 1,500 years later in the story of Christ. The story of Moses and the story of Christ have, are very strikingly similar. And a while, Matt, uh, while back, Matt did a, a really excellent series on Exodus called No Longer Slaves. And if you were here for that, uh, you, you know that was a, it was a great series. Uh, but I don't want to cover too much of that same ground. But there are some things uh, in the narrative of Exodus that, uh, that we see the beginnings of God's design for his people to recognize Jesus when he comes. So it's important that I'm going to touch briefly on just a few things this morning. Anyone that knows me well knows that I love the story of Exodus. Exodus, somebody's very excited about Exodus. Um, <laughs> uh, for, I love the story of Exodus, and, and for me, it's always been something of an academic fascination for me. Um, I've always loved history. And so this morning we're going to talk a little bit, give you some history up front because it's the law of Moses discussion is a dense and broad topic. And so we're going to just give a a, a little bit of history concerning that. Um, 
And I loved history so much growing up that I wanted to be Indiana Jones, okay? When I was little, I wanted to be Indiana Jones, and then it became a fascination when I grew up. I got a degree in archaeology because I wanted a bullwhip. I wanted a fedora. I wanted to fight Nazis, and I knew, I didn't know much about archaeology, but I knew that it involved fighting Nazis, right? So, but I, got, I had a little bit of a wide uh, awakening because what ended up happening was I ended up in a, in a basement of a research facility in Austin, Texas, brushing rocks with a toothbrush. And I felt very lied to, like I'd been betrayed by Hollywood. <laughs> but the story of, of Exodus is really one that we're, that we're all familiar with. You know, we don't have to cover all the same ground. Uh, we probably heard it in Sunday school. We did uh, coloring pages of the Red Sea or Moses with the tablets. Or maybe we, we saw the old movie, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston. And I'm still convinced that Charlton Heston is Moses uh, because that's, that's what I picture. I, I still picture his face glowing with the, with the two uh, tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. Um, or maybe you saw the, the cartoon. Who remembers the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt? That was a, it was a great movie, uh, well told. But all of us probably remember it in this epic, grand way because it really is the great epic of the Old Testament. Every scene of it we can imagine very clearly. But what I love most about the story is how the story of Moses foreshadows the story of Jesus. Moses was a pre-Jesus figure. He was a pre-Christ figure. He was the man that God called out to be his voice and his hands in the land of Egypt and to be a savior for the Hebrews. In the story of Moses, we'll, we'll look at these, some of these similarities uh, between the story of Moses and Jesus. The story of Moses begins with Pharaoh decreeing death of all male Hebrew babies because he feared that the Hebrews were becoming too many and too powerful, right? The story of Christ begins with evil King Herod, the king of Israel, declaring death to all male babies under a certain age out of this fear of this new king that was born. We see baby Moses being saved by his mother, in essence, sending him to the safety of Egypt. By placing him in a basket in the reeds to hide him, him being discovered by a princess of, of Egypt, Pharaoh's own daughter, as she goes to the river to bathe, and him being raised by her. See, Moses' mother knew right where to place that baby, right? There was, there was no secret where the daughter of the Pharaoh went to bathe in the river. She hid him in the reeds, hoping that com compassion would save her child. And it worked. It was a risky move, but it worked. It really was kind of a last-ditch effort. In fact, it reminds me, and I have to do this, it's an homage to our pastor, I have to mention the Lord of the Rings. Because Pippin says, he has a saying that doesn't make much sense. He says, the, further, the, no, the closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm. And that doesn't make sense, but in this case it does, right? She had to send him to the very people that wanted to kill him to save his life. And maybe in a less dramatic turn, Jesus' scenario, the story of Jesus has a, a similar scenario in which after the decree comes down to, to kill all of the, the babies in Israel under a certain age in this region, Joseph and Mary kind of steal away in the night, take Jesus to the safety of Egypt. We see these echoes uh, in both stories. Um, in both stories, we see God raising a savior from the poorest beginnings. Jesus was the son of a carpenter, essentially born in a barn, right? Moses was so poor, he didn't even own himself. 
He was a slave. Two men destined to be redeemers of other men from the humblest beginnings imaginable. But most importantly, though, and central to the discussion this morning, is that both men, Moses and Jesus, were mediators of covenants with God. Moses with the old covenant, Jesus with the new. And, I, and just to get a level set, uh, we may all have different understandings, so let's get a level set on old covenant, new covenant. Old covenant with Moses, we're talking about a transactional, conditional relationship with God because of sin. Now, when I say conditional, I'm not talking about love. God's love is unconditional. I'm talking about the conditions of God's, of the, uh, the Hebrews' prosperity and their protection by God when I say that, okay? The new covenant with Jesus was non-transactional and unconditional, a relationship with God because of grace, okay? Just so that we understand the difference between those. And we could spend years on the direct similarities between Moses and Jesus, but uh, Matt's assured me, he, he, I don't get my own series on this, uh, so I don't have very much time. A pattern emerges when we look carefully at the stories of these two men. God knew the similarities in their stories would be unmistakable. But the hearts of people are so fickle that we require more than magnificent signs and wondrous miracles. The very people that witnessed God's uh, wonders in Egypt, the very ones that passed through the waters of the Red Sea, longed for their chains when they got to the other side. They longed for the security of, of Egypt and wanted to go back. God hadn't captured the hearts of his people yet. He had to get them out of that captivity to begin the real work, okay? And of course, the wonders of God didn't cease when they got into the wilderness. But wonders alone would eventually be forgotten. So three months into their wilderness journey, Moses leads them to the foot of a mountain in Sinai. And he gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which becomes the foundation of the law of Moses, the Mosaic law we're going to be talking about this morning. And Moses, as the mediator of this covenant, would go on to expand the Ten Commandments to 613 laws. 613 laws expanded from ten. Can you imagine that? Imagine that job. Now, we, we, we read in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Bible that, that Moses didn't just arbitrarily do this. Okay, he did it uh, under the direct influence of God. It says God spoke these commands to him and Moses conveyed them to the people. And um, <clears throat> Moses, uh, and, and some of these commands were things like uh, the building of the tabernacle, the, the implements that would go in the tabernacle and uh, specific practices concerning atonements of various sins. These laws primarily listed it in Leviticus. And it's called Leviticus because it's written to the Levite priesthood, okay? The book of Numbers, now y'all stay with me. I know I'm, I'm walking through some, some dense stuff right now, but y'all stick with me for a minute. The fourth book of Moses, the book of Numbers, also called the book of wanderings, contains some law, but it's mostly the story of the Hebrews during their wandering in the wilderness. The laws in this book are practical, concerning things like grain and drink offerings, offerings to the priests, laws concerning marriage and unfaithfulness and things like that. See, as mediator of God's law, Moses had a lot, had to do a whole lot of clarifying for people, a lot of interpreting for them, because these people, as people tend to be, are thick-headed, and they're stubborn, and they lack understanding. 
And so Moses had a lot of work to do with this group. And the last book of the Mosaic Law of the Torah is called Deuteronomy. It directly addresses the lay people, the non-priests. And the, the Jews refer to this book as the repetition of the law because it's really Moses at the end of his life reminding the Hebrews first of their exodus from Egypt and then second, the laws that God gave to them. In it, we see Moses explaining to the Hebrews the essence of the law. See, Moses, as the leader of this stiff-necked and rebellious people, had had what you might call a rough go of it, right? He's had to deal with this great multitude of people and their whininess and their rebelliousness and all their nitpicky issues. He's mediated the law to these people. He's been their judge and their jury. And for a very long time, he's been doing this for a long time, and now he's at the end of his road, okay? He's very old, and he knows now that, he's not, that he himself is not going to get to enter the promised land. He knows he's dying. And so he's come to this intimate understanding of the laws of God. And he's able to see it and convey it with a, a, a more wisdom and more clarity. This morning's message is not intended to be an in-depth study of the law of Moses. Again, years can be spent on this. But this morning, I want to highlight how God used the law to prepare his people to recognize Jesus when he came. The law had a twofold purpose. And we're going to look at those purposes through the filter of the New Testament because hindsight is 2020, okay? We have the benefit of having the New Testament explain some things to us. So Jesus highlights one purpose in Mark 12. And Paul discusses the other purpose in Galatians chapter 3. However, I do want to note that when I say twofold purpose, I don't mean two separate purposes. They're actually two, these two purposes are, are two sides of the same coin, okay? You can't talk about one without talking about the other. Let's first look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. The church at Galatia had a little bit of a faith problem. They wanted to return to a works-based hear that as law-based gospel. And Paul hears about this, and he writes them a strongly worded letter. It's a short letter, but it's pretty strongly worded. And in this letter, he takes the opportunity as an expert of the law. Uh, remember, in, in Acts 23, Paul tells us that he is a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, meaning I come from a lineage of these people that are experts in the law. I know what I'm talking about here, forward and backward. And so he takes the opportunity to set a few things straight. Let's read from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. He says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. That's Moses. Paul says it right away. The law was about sin about recognizing sin, about understanding the gravity of sin. Sin wasn't just a problem, it was the only problem. Sin was the thing that separated us from God. It was death, physically and spiritually. And the purpose of the law, we're going to look at verse 24. It says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was meant to be a tutor for us, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Why? Because the law couldn't do it. The Galatians thought that keeping the law would make them righteous. 
And this is a shame trap that the Christian church continues to fall into even today. Think of the Puritan laws that began around 1630. That's 1600 years after Christ. We're still having to deal with laws of righteousness that people set up. They espoused works as a means of achieving uh, righteousness. And many of those laws persisted for hundreds of years, and some even persist today. Think about the blue laws that are still on the books. You can't go into a grocery store right now and buy a bottle of wine or a beer or whatever before noon on a Sunday. Why? Because good Christian people are supposed to be in church, right? I won't get started on that. Some Christian churches still hold that women shouldn't wear pants or makeup or cut their hair or whatever. And I find it interesting how when groups of hyper-religious people start making laws about righteousness, it's usually or often women that get marginalized. But I'm not going to go there this morning. See how I went there by not saying I'm going to All of these... <laughs> All of these religious laws like this are just ways of saying, if you keep this law, this rule, you will be justified in the sight of God. You'll be found acceptable, holy, or righteous. And this is a terrible misunderstanding of the law and the entire reason why Jesus railed against the Pharisees. See, they missed the point. This is also why Paul took the opportunity to address it with the church at Galatia. Paul says in Galatians 3.11 that no one, no one was justified by the law in the sight of God. See, it was always about recognizing the gravity of sin and understanding the need to atone for it. A great majority of the law written in Leviticus is about how to atone for or repair the wrongdoing of sin. Through blood sacrifices, it asks for. And I would challenge you to read what's written there. We don't have the time this morning, but I would challenge you to go and read it. It was impossible to maintain. Impossible. The entire job of the priesthood was devoted to this purpose, and it was impossible. This is not to say that the law was bad or imperfect. It was not. God's designs are good. It's people. It's us that are imperfect. And imperfect people cannot keep a perfect law God knew this. So the impossibility, now listen, so the impossibility of the law was a design by God to train his people to recognize their need for a once and for all sacrifice. And that sacrifice is exactly what Christ would become. So just to summarize that point, the primary purpose number one, okay, Primary purpose, number one, we'll call it that, was to train God's people to recognize through the impossible standards of the law their own need for a once and for all atonement. It leads me to my second, second primary, primary purpose, number two of the law, was to train God's people to love. I want to read uh, Deuteronomy, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you got your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen too. And remember, Deuteronomy, older, wiser Moses, giving his people the essence of the law. He's learned through the wisdom of his years how to distill all of this into a, to a, a single understanding. And he's conveying that to, his, to the people that are following him. Okay? 10, chapter 12. And now, Israel... 
What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and the statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. You above all people as it is this day. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore love the stranger. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and, you, uh, and, uh, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Therefore, chapter 11, verse 1, therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgment, and his commandments always. Now, now, moving on from there, he begins to, to continue this, this old covenant language of transactional, of rewards for obedience, of prosperity and protection for obedience. And then down in chapter, let's go jump down to, to uh, Deuteronomy 11, uh, verse 22. He says, for if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I have commanded you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, and I will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. You get the gist right. Three times he said it. He repeats it here over and over and over. Love the Lord your God. Keep his commandments. Hold fast to him. Love the Lord your God. Keep his commandments. Hold fast to him. That's the essence. That's the essence of the law. That's what he drives home repeatedly. Now, we see a reprisal of this in, in Mark chapter 12. Let's turn there. Jesus has something to say. Mark chapter 12. We have this scenario in which the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are coming to Jesus. They're constantly trying to question him and get him to fall somehow so that they can arrest him or kill him. They're always trying to entrap him in some way. And this is exactly what they're doing. They've come to him and they're asking a whole bunch of questions. The Pharisees ask theirs. The Sadducees ask theirs. Finally, the scribe asked Jesus. And it says this, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceive, perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, when he asks what is the first commandment, he's not asking if Jesus knows his commandments. He's asking, how well do you know Moses? How well do you know Deuteronomy? How well do you know what he said? What is essential to the law? How well do you know your law, Jesus? And Jesus says this. Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe says to him, well said, Rabbi. 
You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that the scribe had answered him wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody dared to question Jesus anymore. I love that part. In Matthew, we see the same account written in a slightly different way. Matthew 22 gives us uh, this account, but instead of the scribes saying it, Jesus is the one that, 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 uh, that illuminates the role of love. Instead of the scribe, he says, On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that Moses wrote, all 613 laws that he recorded, hang upon loving your God and loving your neighbor. The law as a tutor for God's people was to train them to put on love so that they might recognize love when it finally came. Essentially, they had to put on Christ before Christ came that they might recognize Christ when he came. But something terrible happened along the way. The wonders of God in Egypt were forgotten. The commandments and the statutes and the law of Moses was forgotten repeatedly, generation upon generation. The Old Testament shows us the story of a people who do not remember the Lord their God, who do not obey his commands, who do not bind the law upon their hands and foreheads, who do not write it on their doorposts or teach it to their children. It's the story of a people who do not love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the story of a people who do not love the foreigner or the widow or the orphan, who do not love their neighbors as they love themselves without learning the lessons, without learning the lessons of the law that it was intended to teach. The law had become a curse to the Jews bound to a law that they could not keep, that was impossible to keep. So 1,500 years after Moses, in the city of David, love arrives. Jesus arrives quietly in the night. And the culmination of the law is upon Israel. The sacrificial lamb is here. Love in the flesh is here. The seed promised to Adam, promised to Abraham, promised to Moses has arrived. And the people that Jesus was sent to, God's people, they're not really all that much further along than when they left Egypt, are they? They're still stiff-necked. They're still prideful. Their hearts are prone to wander. They're still fickle in their spirit. Jesus finds a people that have terribly misunderstood the purpose of the law. And that have, in essence, made the law their God. See, the law, they felt, made them special. It set them above all others. They believed it made them righteous before God. They debated it constantly, and they segmented themselves into different groups based on this various understandings of the law. They used the law to put themselves on a pedestal, to call other nations, other people, dogs, they did not love their God and they did not love their neighbor and they had missed the point altogether. So when these people encountered Jesus, they were understandably confused, right? Everyone in the region had heard rumblings, rumors 
of Messiah concerning Jesus. How could they not? Here is a man that meets the character of the Messiah that the prophets actually told them about. But they expected something very different in the person of the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to be a triumphant king. He would lead Israel to victory over their enemies, and he would set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire, essentially making Israel great again, right? What they found was a man that acted like a servant, and he healed the sick, and he touched the diseased, and he treated the dogs of mankind with love and respect. He didn't put on airs, and he acted humbly. He boldly corrected the religious, the religious elite, often publicly concerning the law. And rather than allowing that to work in their own hearts, to allow them to examine their own hearts, what did they do? They hated him, and they sought to kill him. The law that God intended to train his people to love and to recognize their own need for him had instead become a handicap to them. Instead, it bred self-righteousness and self-love, the very opposite of the purpose of the law. So what does this mean to us? We're Gentiles, right? We're people that are not under the law, never been under the law. We're under grace, right? What does this actually have to do with us? The question that I want us to consider this morning is, would we recognize him? Are we so different than that stiff-necked, rebellious, stubborn, nitpicky, whiny? Are we so different? And I'm pointing these fingers back at myself. As I went through this, as I walked through this preparation over this, there were arrows pointing right at myself. Because that's me. The church of today, you and me, we have to understand that while the purpose of the old law was accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ, the essence of the law is still very much at work. The law of Moses was fulfilled by the coming of Christ and his redemptive work on the cross, but the essence of the law is found in the new covenant also, of which Jesus is the mediator. The atonement was accomplished, but we still need to recognize our own need for a Savior. And we still need to put on Christ and walk in love and obedience with God. And we must, we must love our neighbor. As the band comes up, I want to reiterate what Kellen read earlier in Romans 13. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, that's all of them, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Where the old covenant was established because of sin, the new covenant in Jesus Christ was established because of love. That love must permeate our hearts and our homes and our relationships and our politics, guys. Love has a way. It has characteristics. Matt just finished a series on it of the actions, the way that love is. Matt talked last week about how we like to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like. 
And I would say we do the same with the way we love. We choose how we want our love to look. I'll leave you with this, guys. Love is not concerned with building a wall. It is concerned about the foreigner in our land. It is concerned about the immigrant. It is concerned about our neighbors to the north and the east and the west and the south. Love is not concerned about your rights as a citizen in this United States. It is concerned with justice for all people, for all races, for all beliefs, for all genders. Love is not concerned about making a nation great. But it is concerned about recognizing first the greatness of our God and his great love for us. Pray with me. Father, you are holy and your ways are higher than our ways. Grow in us, Father, the love that you intended for us to have. The love that you have for us. Thank you for sending love to us. Thank you for your son. Father, grow in us, in our lives, a love that fills us up, a love that overflows, that, that everything that we say, the works of our hands, the words of our mouth, are fragrant with love. We love you, Father. Help us and forgive us for not loving. In Jesus' name, amen.